Um, today, we are continuing our series in the book of Daniel, and I titled this talk, Sea Monsters, and you'll see why in just a moment. Uh, but I will admit to you that I struggled with this chapter, and in fact, there is a, there's the narrative portion of Daniel, which is Daniel 1 through 6, and then there's the apocalyptic portion, and I will confess to you, as a pastor, I try to avoid sometimes these apocalyptic visions because they're very intimidating to me. How many of you all find the book of Revelation extremely intimidating? Raise your hand. You're like, what is he talking about? So Daniel 7 through 12 is very similar to that. And I will I'll be honest, I decided I was going to take something from Daniel 7 through 8 myself today. And then next week, Kim Rod Slavin will wrap up Daniel's series. And she's taking something from Daniel 9 through 12. I don't even know what it is yet. But she's going to teach some kind of thematic conclusion for Daniel. So you want to be here for that next Sunday. Uh, but think of Daniel 1 through 6. How many of you all are, are part of theater? Like you love theater? Raise your hand. Raise your hand high. I'd be proud. Yes. And uh, so think of Daniel 1 through 6. Daniel 1 through 6 is kind of like what's happening on the front of the theater stage. It's a story playing out in public view where everyone can see it. But Daniel 7 through 12 is what's happening behind the curtain. This is a stuff that's like cosmic stuff. And we see good versus evil playing out in the lives. So in Daniel 1 through 6, we see good versus evil playing out in the lives of Daniel and his friends right there on that front stage. But the second half of the book is good versus evil behind the curtain at a cosmic level. And I will admit to you that today's talk is going to be light on application. You're going to walk away and go, okay, how did that relate to my dating life? I don't really know, okay? But that's not really the point. The point isn't to take every single verse and make it match up with what you're dealing with in the here and now. But I just hope you get a, just an extremely glorious vision of God today as we look at Daniel chapter 7. And, and that you just walk away just in awe and, and that you want to worship him. If you don't yet know him, to today's chapter, really the next couple of weeks, um, this chapter and also next week's talk as well. If you're someone that's not yet a Christ follower or you're a skeptic, then when you take a step back and look at Daniel 7 through 12, it's pretty astounding how prophetic these chapters are. And how, I think as Christians, we take them for granted. We just think, yeah, we know there's some predictive prophecies in the Bible. Yeah, we get it. We've known that since we were kids. But when you look at what's being written in these chapters, and how accurate they seem to be when it comes to world history, it's pretty incredible when you really think about that. And it leaves us just in awe and in and, 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 and worship of the God that we serve. So a little bit of background. Uh, the rest of the book, you're going to see these images that Daniel sees, these visions that he sees. And they are meant to provoke this response in the reader. So you know whenever you go see a really powerful movie, then you try to go describe that to a friend, it's really difficult, right? Like you can't just put in words what you just saw on the screen. The images and the music and the acting and all those things came together in that moment in the theater, and now you gotta describe it in written word to a friend. That's really difficult to do. That's kind of like the challenge that Daniel has here because he is seeing these images and these visions that God's gonna give him in a dream, and now he has to write about them and share them with the people of Israel, and we get to glean from that as well. So it's difficult for us to do, but Daniel chapter 7 is 
not chronological after Daniel 6. It actually flashes back to a previous era, and it goes back to when Belshazzar was in his first year as king, which is before Daniel chapter 5. So look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to 3, where it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told us some of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Now, in the ancient world, the sea was associated with chaos. Now, how many of you all have ever been on, like, a boat out in the ocean, and at some point you were terrified, right? Most of you have probably done that before. If, you, if not, the thought of it, like, I get super motion sick, and so the thought of that just terrifies me, to be out on the ocean or to be in the sea. So it's no secret that the ancient world, they thought of the sea as being this place of chaos, which for a lot of people it is, and it was, and they lived in great fear of it. And you're going to notice that in the vision, every creature, as we go through this vision that Daniel saw, every creature is more terrifying than the previous one. And, you know, these, at times these wild beasts are used to depict uh, the empires. So you're going to see in this, as this unfolds, these wild beasts are depicted to show the brutality of the empires that they're also supposed to be depicting. Many believe that these visions you're going to see represented the same kingdoms as the image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in Daniel chapter 2. So I'm going to take you through. I tried to make this as visual as I could without being kind of goofy, but um, it's hard to find non-goofy images depicting what you see in Daniel chapter 7. It's just difficult. Uh, let's just admit, Christian art sometimes just isn't so great, right? And uh, so this is the first image that we, um, that we come across in Daniel 7. And it's this image as described in the verses after verse 3. It's the image of a lion. And what's interesting about, as you see this, these images unfold in Daniel 7, uh, many people believe that the book of Daniel was so accurate in its predictive prophecy that many skeptics believed it was written after the events took place. There were people in the academies, the, the, the elite universities, that said there's no way that Daniel was written before the events took place because they were too accurate. And that's what the skeptics said. So it just goes to show how the Bible can be shown throughout history. Now, Daniel sees this image of a great lion, and it has the wings of an eagle. Now, the wings in the vision, they get plucked off, and the lion is made then to stand up like a man. And it's also then given the mind of a man at that point in the, in the vision. Now, when you look at that image, that, that looks like Chronicles of Narnia type stuff. It looks like this very impressive uh, beast, right? But these are really meant to be seen as a perversion of God's created order. Because if you go back to Genesis, it says that God created everything after its kind. And so this, even though it looks impressive to us and, and pretty amazing, this is actually a perversion of God's created design because God didn't intend for these kinds of, 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 uh, of animals to be crossed, right? And uh, these will be considered like mutants, we might say. Now, how many of you guys ever watched those shows when animals attack? You like to watch those shows, possibly? And, um, and, and it's just interesting to see how the animal kingdom works. 
and you see the brutality. We're reminded of the brutality of how the world can be in, in its fallen state. And it can be impressive when you see a, just a regular lion you know, tear into another animal or an eagle swoop down and, and to get its prey. But imagine if we combined those traits into one animal, like the power of a lion and the speed of an eagle, like how impressive that would be. So many believe that this first animal represents the Babylonian kingdom and Nebuchadnezzar as its king. And we do know the prophet Jeremiah over in Jeremiah 49. He does use, use both those images, the lion and the eagle, to depict Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Jeremiah. And so if this does represent Nebuchadnezzar, then the wings getting plucked off would be his humiliation that we read about earlier in the book of Daniel. And then we also know after he was humbled by God, he became more humane. And at least, he, at least, he seemed to at least have some semblance of repentance before God. And that's what's depicted here in the, in the vision where the, the animal gets the mind of a man is, is given to this, 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 this uh, animal being. Now, we know that empires and nations, they often get linked with strong beasts in the animal kingdom, even today. Uh, just imagine if any superpower in the world just imagine the kind of animals they often link to, link to their nations or symbols of their, uh, of their nations. Um, it's rarely a tame animal that they're going to pick to depict like how they want to be thought of as a nation. Um, this is also true of your school mascots, right? Uh, we have Temple Wildcats. We have Belton Tigers. We have the Lake Belton Broncos. We have the Bumblebees. Okay, it's not always consistent with power, right? Um, but we do see how these things get depicted. Like you would never, nobody would ever call them the temple turtle doves or the Belton bunny rabbits. Like we're not going to pick those kinds of mascots. We want strong, bold mascots for our teams. And the same goes for countries and nations. So nations often associate themselves with strong animals, even today. Did you know, I did not know this until this week, that Ben Franklin, he wanted the, the turkey to be our national bird. I didn't know that. Like, just think about that. If the turkey was our national bird, it can't even fly, right? And it, its, its job in life is to die and get eaten. That's its whole job in life, right, as a turkey. Um, so that, I'm glad that didn't pass, right? Now we, we have an eagle, which is an impressive animal. So these, these impressive animals get linked with, with power and prestige. That's true today. It's also true back then. The next image that Daniel sees is this picture of a bear. And the image he sees is this bear that has three ribs in its mouth. This is not like Miller's barbecue type ribs. These are different kinds of ribs, and they actually carry some symbolism. He sees a bear with three ribs in its mouth, and in the vision, the bear is told, arise and devour much flesh. And many think this represents the, the Medo-Persian Empire, and the three ribs may symbolize three countries that they conquered, which was Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. And that's historical. And then the next image that he sees coming up out of the ocean, out of the, this, these sea monsters, is this image of a leopard. And the image is very impressive. It's part leopard, it's part bird. It has four wings, it has four heads on this thing. 
and this is a combination of speed and ferocity, and the four heads allow it to see in all different directions at the same time. And many believe this represents the Greek emperor, Alexander the Great, who conquered the known world. Like, we think of this animal being extremely fast and swift, and that's just how Alexander the Great conquered. He conquered the known world by the age of 32. That's pretty impressive, right? And he reached a point of almost boredom, like, what else is there for me to do? And he died at a fairly young age. But after his death, the empire, the Greek empire, is divided into, guess how many kingdoms? Four kingdoms, all right? Representing, uh, many think that these four heads represent those four kingdoms. And then last is this fourth beast that's not as specific in the Bible text. So many kind of draw it up almost like a dinosaur-type vision, right? A a lizard-type vision. And it's the most difficult to describe because there's no reference to any known animals today. So many depict it like this. And Daniel says it was the most terrifying one. It's the most dreadful one. It says that it had iron teeth, which is strange because that almost sounds like it's part robot or something, right? Like it's got metal teeth. That's strange. And uh, it, it devours all in its sight. It says it has ten horns, and it has this smaller horn, this eleventh horn that comes up from the ten, uprooting three of the ten horns. And the smaller horn that rises up here has, it says has eyes and a mouth that speaks with arrogance. That's the image he's seeing. Many believe that this image represents Rome and all that Rome stood for. They believe that, some believe that the ten horns could represent these these ten rulers that ruled Rome at different times throughout their history. I take the view that, that the ten horns are more just symbolic and not um, about any certain country or any certain ruler or leader. Uh, but we know that Rome was completely ruthless, and they would capture people, they would enslave people, and they would kill some, they would throw others into slavery. And that's kind of what is described here, I think, as you look at the text in Daniel chapter 7. Now, uh, next pictures I'm going to show you. There's this image of, and, and, and as the Daniel 7 moves on, we hear about this, this person, this, this character, the Ancient of Days that he now sees. And um, this is where Christian art just goes bad, in my opinion. And so I did find a couple of images. Uh, they're not so great, but it's what I have. And this is the first one. And uh, so... This is how they're trying to picture, like, listen, when I, when I saw this picture, I just thought, there's a reason why God said the second commandment was don't make any graven images, even of me, the true God. And here's why, because you're going to end up with stuff like this, right? You're gonna, it's going to look like Gandalf in a flaming wheelchair, right? That's what it's going to look like. And God's just like, no, 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 just don't even try. Just wait till you get up here. It's going to be good. You're going to love it. But don't, don't make your, your shabby attempts at, at trying to depict me in some image. And I think this is why. Now, um, so this is the first image of the Ancient of Days. And this is the, the second one I found that is a little bit better, but not so much. Um, anyway, that was the second image of just what came up. And, uh, but he sees this image, and this is depicting God the Father, the Ancient of Days, on his throne, his clothing is as white as snow, his hair is white like wool, and it says his throne is like a chariot emanating fire, and its wheels are ablaze. 
So Daniel's trying to describe this incredible image. And he's surrounded by angels. And this is really this powerful courtroom scene that's taking place. And so the Ancient of Days shows up. And look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 11 through 12, where it says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So this, this little horn, this 11th horn that was raised up and is just, you know, talking trash and yammering, yammering, yammering in front of the throne of God, it says here that God just destroys it. And for the rest of the beast, their dominion is taken, but they're allowed to live a little bit longer. And then look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man, that's Jesus. So Jesus shows up and, and comes to the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father, and Jesus is handed dominion over all these kingdoms. And I want you to remember back earlier in Daniel, that image that Nebuchadnezzar set up in Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel 3, 7, it says, as soon as everyone heard Nebuchadnezzar's music, it says that all the peoples and the nations and languages, they fell down and they worshiped the golden image that he had set up. And now those same words are being used in reference to people and nations and languages bowing down and worshiping the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. So remember back earlier that rock that destroys the, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar built, or I'm sorry, his dream in, in Daniel chapter 2? There was the image of the, of, of the statue in Daniel chapter 2, and there was a rock that grows up and fills the earth. This is what's happening here in, the, in this vision with Daniel. Look at uh, the next verse in verse 15 where it says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So we can understand, like put yourself just for a minute in Daniel's shoes. Just try to think of, of what it would be like to be him. We can understand how all of this made him anxious because he is looking in these visions, he is looking into the face of human evil. And he is seeing it for all its brutality and ugliness in this dream, in this vision. But he's also seeing into God's courtroom. And he's seeing this, this other side of the coin. And he's compelled to go over to one of the angels and he asks for an interpretation. And this angel tells Daniel what it means. You see, the Israelites, they are living in exile under these oppressive kingdoms. So they had this profound sense of worry and anxiety about this battle between good and evil. They were seeing it firsthand every day in their lives. 
And so we've got to put ourselves for a minute in their shoes. Because some of us, when we, when we look at our lives or look around the world, it, it feels like evil is winning. That seems true on a small scale. It seems true on a large scale. When you think about the things in your life that you're anxious about, worried about, upset about, it could be family drama, it could be friend drama, it could be school drama, sports team drama, it could be any one of a number of things. Or if you're someone who thinks really outward and you're, you're the kind of person who is constantly just consumed with the things in the world on a grand scale that just seem wrong, and you find yourself getting overwhelmed by those things, and you begin to question and wonder whether or not he's truly in control, there are some who, they, they would say that's the reason why they can't come to faith. They would say, I, I just can't believe in a God who would allow such things, who would allow someone, a dictator like Vladimir Putin, to invade another country and, and just decimate people. Or just pick any spot in the world where you see injustice happening. And there are people that say, I can't believe in a God who would let something like that happen in the world or in some way in my own life. And so if that's where you find yourself, I think Daniel 7 should be great encouragement to you. Just looking at the idea that God is over all of this. And he's in control of all of it. And then this, Daniel then asks this angel more about the fourth beast that he sees here. And there's been much debate about this fourth kingdom. Many would argue that the fourth beast represents the Roman Empire. And again, some, some identify these ten horns with the ten kingdoms that follow after Rome. And I don't think we have to get that specific about what those, what those represent. But many people link this eleventh horn with the Antichrist in the New Testament that's mentioned. So in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, it describes this in more detail. He shall speak, this is the little horn that's talking trash in front of God. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now what does all that mean? Well, many believe, again, this is the Antichrist figure who will do three things. Speak out against Jesus, speak out against God, who will persecute believers and try to change the times and the law. And for a while, it's going to look like he's winning, evil's winning. But some people link this last phrase where it says a time, a times, and half a time. They say the first word time means a year, and times means two years, and then half a time is like half a year, and they add up and they get three and a half years. And many would say this is the, the suffering part of the tribulation, where this figure rises up and really persecutes believers during this time, the first half of the, of the tribulation. But then after this, in verses 26 to 27, it says that God takes away the dominion of whoever this person is, and he's destroyed. And then God sets up his kingdom, and he is now ruling and reigning along with believers. And then skip down to... Daniel 7, verse 28, where it says, this is the end of the chapter, and Daniel's final thoughts on this vision. He says, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now, I, I want you to just, again, think about Daniel from his perspective. Put yourself in his shoes. Put yourself in the shoes 
of an Israelite, what it must have been like to live in that exiled place under oppression and in some sense of suffering and trying to reconcile God's goodness with what you're experiencing every day as you live in that empire, under that empire. So I want you to just sense and feel what Daniel's feeling, sense and feel what an Israelite might be feeling under those circumstances. So when you look back at Daniel chapter 2, there's a couple of comparisons I want to show you. So Daniel 2 and and, and Daniel 7, there's a lot of parallels with those two chapters. We see Nebuchadnezzar's image in chapter 2, and then Daniel's of of the four beasts here in in chapter 7. The visions given to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 and and Daniel 7 is given to Daniel. Uh, Daniel 2 is more general. Daniel 7 is more detailed. Daniel interprets what happens in chapter 2, but an angel interprets it for Daniel in Daniel 7. And then there is man's viewpoint and there's God's viewpoint. Daniel 2 is a look at good versus evil from man's perspective. And then again, chapter 7 is like going behind the curtain on a stage. It is a look at cosmic good versus evil from God's perspective. And so how do you boil down like Daniel 7? Like what does it teach us? So I attempted to get applicational just a little bit. And so I have three ideas for you to think about. Again, it shows us the conflict of good versus evil from God's perspective. We've talked about how that plays out here in this chapter. And I think it's important for you to think about that, meditate on that, because so often we just think about it from our perspective and not God's perspective. And then secondly, our hope does not reside in centers of world power. I know we talk about this sometimes in, around election season, how, you know, this one person is going to change everything and make everything better, and then that never seems to really happen fully, right? But we have to remember that our hope does not reside in the centers of world power, whether it be this nation or any nation throughout the world and throughout history. We cannot find our hope there. And then lastly, it helps us face conflict on earth knowing that God ultimately reigns. So if you're trying to hang on to something and and trying to figure out, like, how can I be confident that God is in control? How can I be confident that God has his people's best interests in mind? How can I be confident that God, that Jesus is victorious? How do we know that? Well, the cross is really our guarantee. I want to read to you from Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, where it says this. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The cross is like this reminder, this down payment for us, that even though it looks like defeat, this was God's way of turning the tables on the world's kingdoms, turning the tables on our own sin. And at the cross and also through the resurrection, he triumphs over those things. And we can take confidence in that. I want to have you guys go to your breakouts. It is a little bit late because we got started late. 
So you guys are going to go. You should know where to go by now. But freshman girls over there, sophomore girls.